Hello and welcome to Orwellian, the podcast dedicated to the essays of George Orwell. When you hear the word Orwellian, what do you think of? Terrifying dystopias? State surveillance? The loss of personal freedom? Well, we think of tea, pubs and the common toad. Join us and we'll tell you why. Hello everyone, welcome. My name is Lewis and I'm here with my co-host. Simon, good evening. Or whatever time it is when you're listening. (laughs) And today we're going to be discussing another of the essays of George Orwell. But before we start, Simon, how is things? Things is good. Yourself? Not bad. Uh, We've just had a nice dinner, haven't we? Yeah, cooked up a lovely cottage pie. So it really should have been something Spanish, but uh, we decided to go with an old standby. Uh, But uh, I feel primed and ready for what is going to be a bit of a challenging essay. I'm I'm still coming out of my food coma. (laughs) I feel sleepy and desperately full. But we'll we'll, we'll be good. We'll get through this. Today we are going to be discussing the essay Spilling the Spanish Beans. Uh, It was first published in the New English Weekly. Uh, and it was published in two parts. first part was published 29th of July, the second part 2nd of September 1937. So right in the middle of the Spanish Civil War. Uh, only one year into the Spanish Civil War, I think. Uh, Simon, this was your choice. Why yep. did you choose it? Well, I used to live in Spain for many years and it's a country close to my heart. And as you know, I, I, I love history too. So the two, two of those things combined. Made, meant that I had a really strong interest in the Spanish Civil War. And it's a really unique war in that, obviously, it was a civil war, which are always a special type of war. And it was the precursor to World War II, where a lot of the ideologies and techniques were played out on, a, on the international stage. Yes. So it's, it's this fascinating war. And, of course, Orwell's involvement in it lent an even deeper interest to me in it. Quite looking forward to discussing this. First of many essays which cover the Spanish Civil War, but this one really gives you an introduction to Orwell's insight into his involvement of the war and how he felt it was going. And if you are a fan of Orwell, you probably know about Orwell's involvement in the Spanish Civil War. You might have read his very famous work, uh, Homage to Catalonia. Um, I have to make an embarrassing disclosure right now that I have never read Homage to Catalonia. I've actually never read any of Orwell's longer works. I've always been more of a fan of his essays. Have you read Homage to Catalonia? I have read it and I love it. But what I will say for people who haven't read it, don't worry because Homage to Catalonia basically covers what's in this essay in more depth. Yeah. So this essay really is a lovely introduction to to Homage to Catalonia. But for those of you, including yourself, Lewis, who haven't read Homage to Catalonia, get a hold of it. It's a wonderful book. And I'll tell you something interesting about Homage to Catalonia. It only sold 900 copies until later in his life when he had released his more famous books and it sold on the back of those. But it really wasn't a popular book at the time. Yes, and I think there might have been political reasons for that as well. As, yeah, which uh, we will discuss. Yes. And, and now there's, there's a pluser George Orwell in the centre of Barcelona. Such has been the impact of his work on how we now create a narrative on the Spanish Civil War. 
I don't want to go off on a tangent or indeed get ahead of myself here, mm -hmm. but I do. I, I have wanted to ask you for a while, Simon. You've lived in Spain. Yeah. You lived in Spain for quite a long time, so presumably had a lot of in-depth conversations with other with Spanish people. Yeah. Um, do you know? Do you have any idea of Orwell's reputation in modern-day Spain? Is he? You, you say there is a a place named after him, but. But is he just a, like another foreigner who came to interfere in their internal political situation? Or is, is he looked up to in modern-day Spain? Well, notably, the Plaza Giorgio is in Barcelona. So it depends who you talk to. Make no mistake, Spain is still incredibly divided along similar lines that were exposed during the Civil War. So in the Civil War, it was Republicans and Nationalists. And you can more or less define the nationalists as being more right-wing, more conservative, believe in the Catholic Church, private ownership, the aristocracy, and the Republicans were more libertarian, left-wing, believed more in collectivization and, and social welfare. Mm, everything from the centre to the left. Really. Yeah, and that still very much exists today. So traditionally, at the moment, the Partido Popular is more on the right, and that came from the parties associated with Franco's era. And on the left, you have uh, PSOE, which is the Social Workers Party, which represents people who would have been more Republican back in the day. And you also have more extreme versions of those parties now, with Vox being very right-wing and um, Podemos being very left-wing. So this division still exists in Spain more than they do in any other country I, I've travelled to. So if you're speaking to somebody who is traditionally a, a Pepe, Partido Popular voter, uh, they're probably not. They're probably not aware, or certainly not a fan of Orwell's work on the Spanish Civil War. Whereas a PSOE voter, somebody from Catalonia, perhaps, will be a big fan of Orwell. Interesting. Let's just put this into some context then. So he, he writes this article, you, you've already said when, and he's been back in the UK just for a month, having been to Spain for just under a year himself, contributing to the Republican cause of the Spanish Civil War. And basically, spilling the beans is about communist duplicity in the Spanish Civil War. We'll get more into that as we discuss the essay. But... Orwell was outraged by the extent to which developments in Spain were being lied about and distorted on the left. And also by the difficulty in getting any alternative viewpoint heard on what was happening on the Republican side. The suppression of working class power and the repression of the revolutionary left were, were being completely ignored amidst the general celebration of the popular, popular front which were the Republicans. And minor militias, such as the one Orwell became a member of, such as Poom, were routinely libeled as either fascist organisations or organisations manipulated by the fascists. And Orwell had seen the hand of the Communist Party and his many fellow travellers at work in this narrative. And he basically made it his mission upon returning to the UK to set about contesting those versions of events influenced by the Communist Party in that narrative. And as a result of this, we'll discuss, he made many enemies. Yes, he starts off the essay uh, saying, 
the war in Spain has produced a lot of dishonesty in the press. Yeah. But whereas you might expect him to then go on about the dishonesty of the right-wing press, and he does mention, uh, it's quite funny, he writes here, um, and I'm quoting Orwell, I honestly doubt, in spite of all those hecatones of nuns who have been raped and crucified before the eyes of Daily Mail reporters, whether it is the pro-fascist newspapers who have done the most harm. So you would expect him to be writing an article about the lies of the right-wing press, but actually he is pointing out the lies of the left-wing press, which, are, which very much sympathises and toes the party line of uh, the Communist Party, the Communist International, and therefore Stalinist Russia. Publications such as The Daily Worker, The News Chronicle, perhaps even The New Statesman, these are all left-wing publications that were pushing the Republican cause. So before we dive into the essay, shall I just give a bit of background as to Orwell's involvement in the Spanish Civil yes. War? Orwell travelled to Spain in December 1936, talking about maybe six, seven months after the war's begun. So he's in Barcelona, which is where he arrives, and his initial intention is to gather material for newspaper articles, which will then send back by telegraph to Britain to be published. And he also, in his own words, had some vague idea of fighting, if it seemed worthwhile. Very Orwellian, isn't it? So... Upon arriving in Barcelona, he says himself, it was the first time I had ever been in a town where the working class was in the saddle. I recognised it immediately as a state of affairs worth fighting for. So he makes up his mind, he's going to fight. So he joins the Workers' Party of Marxists Unification, known as PUM, which is an anti-Stalinist party. That's important to mention because it puts his, his, this essay into context. And the leader of Pum, Andres Nin, had once been a close ally of Leon Trotsky, which is also important to putting this essay into context. So Nin had just been forced out of the Catalan government as a result of communist influence, which had grown in Spain on the Republican side since Russian supply ships had started arriving around October 1936. Now, the, the nationalists had been getting help from Mussolini in Italy and Hitler in Germany since the beginning of the war. And in, in, in reply to that, the Republicans decided to turn to Stalin and the communists. So Orwell, upon deciding he was going to fight under Poom for the Republicans, gets sent to a village called Altubierde, which was on the Aragon Front, which is just to the west of Catalonia in the north of Spain. In May 1937, so about five months after he starts fighting, he gets shot in the throat by a fascist sniper. Obviously, he survives and his recovery wasn't too bad. But a month after that, in, on the 23rd of June 1937, he, him, along with his wife, he finally has to sneak across the French border and escape because Poum, who he was fighting under, is being purged by the Stalinists within the Communist Party. Yes, and I think it's also interesting and important to mention that Orwell's wife, Eileen, was in Spain at the same time as Orwell. Uh, while Orwell was at the front fighting, she was in Barcelona, and 
later on, someone who knew her in Barcelona wrote that when he spoke with her uh, or when he received letters from her, he could tell that she had experienced living under political terror firsthand. Yeah. Um, because at that time, the Stalinist and communist elements or Stalinism and communism were really the same thing at that time. They were really cracking down on the non-communist left-wing revolutionaries within the Republican movement. And uh, Orwell had to, as you said, flee Spain. He was separated from his wife. She had to get out of Spain uh, one way. He had to get out of Spain another way. Uh, so they really escaped by the skin of their teeth, didn't they? Yeah. And they settle in a village on the coast of southern France where he writes this essay and sends it back to London to be published. But all the notable left-wing newspapers don't publish this essay because it's critical of the communists. And according to Orwell, the left-wing publications at the time in the UK were under the influence of the Communist Party. Yeah. And also, I think, critically, not just critical of the communists, but critical of the whole kind of idea of a popular front of left-wing parties against fascism, because Orwell also has a lot of problems with the what he describes as the more right-wing socialists and the liberals. Well, we'll get into that, yeah. I think. Well, I mean, so let's jump into the essay. So after what you mentioned, how he, you know, how he speaks of the left-wing newspapers being the problem, he then goes on to speak of how the Communist Party is undermining the Republican cause. And he criticises them for forcible suppression of political parties, a stifling censorship of the press, ceaseless espionage and mass imprisonment without trial. He's hinting that on the left, the Republicans, they are their own worst enemy. He describes it as the real struggle is between revolution and counter-revolution, between the workers who are vainly trying to hold on to a little of what they had won in 1936 and the liberal communist bloc who are successfully taking it away from them. When the nationalists first came into Spain from Morocco, they made a lot of gains in, in the south of Spain. And then workers' militias that sprung up in defence of the Republican Revolution that had happened a year before won back this territory and immediately were disbanded and this territory was taken over by the central government, like Republican government. And Orwell suspects that just the status quo was reverted to as well, like all the collectivization that had been happening under the workers' militias was undone and suddenly it was back to how things were. Yes, he mentions how a lot of those who set up uh, workers' councils and um, expropriated land and property in the liberated areas, he mentions how a lot of them tended to be uh, sorry, anarchists or syndicalists. And we all know uh, that... Uh, Anarcho-syndicalists. Anarcho-syndicalists. Uh, we all know that uh, very... Orthodox communists are no fans of anarchism, are they? So he's trying to make people in England aware that communists everywhere are in alliance with bourgeois reformism and use using the whole of their powerful machinery to crush or discredit any party that shows signs of revolutionary tendencies. So these communists, they're not the revolutionaries of Russia in 19... 
18 or mm. 17, then they're now more right-wing bourgeois liberalists who dislike and distrust revolution and hence trying to maintain the status quo in the Republican portions of Spain. Yes, that really comes out in a quote later in the essay where he points out that he thinks sooner or later a lot of people in the West are going to come down on the side of communism because Soviet communism, in his opinion, is, as he puts it, playing the game of capitalism yeah. in promoting more conservative values, uh, strict control of the workers, regimentation, cracking down on dissent, that sort of thing. Very much what was going on in the USSR yes. at the time. So then he goes on in the essay to give his origins of the Civil War and to explain the current situation. So he, he talks about how there was a military invasion by the nationalists under Francisco Franco, who later went on to become General Franco. Uh, a military invasion backed by big business, the landowning aristocracy, and as how he calls it, the huge parasitic church, Catholic church, that is. The war was opposed by peasants who are naturally opposed to feudalism, which was what the nationalists were trying to bring back. And it was also opposed by the liberal bourgeoisie, who are definitely the target of this essay. The liberal bourgeoisie is generally liberal up to the point where its own interests stop. And that's where revolution comes in, because revolution tends to diminish the benefits enjoyed by the liberal bourgeoisie. So the two groups, the liberal bourgeoisie and the workers, the peasants, formed the popular front against Franco after the invasion. But it was an uneasy alliance. Orwell says it has as much right to exist as a pig with two heads or some other Barnum and Bailey monstrosity. They are not fighting for the same thing. The bourgeoisie is fighting for bourgeoisie democracy, i.e. capitalism. The worker, insofar as he understands the issue, is fighting for socialism. Two very different things. Could you explain to me Barnum and Bailey monstrosity, Lewis? So in America, and perhaps in Europe, they might have toured throughout the world, um, it was the most famous and successful circus of the 19th and early 20th century, founded by um, a man called P.T. Barnum. Uh, who was famous for exhibiting exotic and strange things and uh, very much tied up with the whole um, idea of the freak show as well, which these days is uh, somewhat controversial. But um, Barnum, his famous catchphrase was never give a sucker an even break. So he was <laughs> all about taking the money of credulous people um, and then fobbing them off with some uh, made-up monster in a dark tent. Um, things like the Fiji mermaid, which he claimed was evidence that mermaids existed but turned out to be just like a, a monkey sewn onto a sea bass, that sort of thing. <laughs> so it's basically, he's saying that the alliance between liberals and communists is freakish and 
probably not going to last very long. Yeah, it'll be it'll be found out. The rest of part one of this essay is him talking about how he doubts the sincerity of Russia's involvement in the war. Whereas Hitler and Mussolini were genuinely passionate about Franco and his nationalists winning the war so they could have a ally in the south of Europe, Stalin and the Russians, according to Orwell, are more interested in extorting the Republicans terms for weapons sales and fearing how a genuine revolutionary movement winning in Spain could be echoed in Russia and undermine Stalinist authority. Yes, as we know, Stalin, uh, Stalinism didn't just happen after the revolution. I, I think that a lot of people, when they think about revolutionary and post-revolutionary Russia, they just imagine it was 70 years of Stalinism, whereas there were periods of greater openness, periods of uh, greater freedom, with periods of crackdowns as well. Before Stalin rose to power, there had been a certain amount of liberalisation in Russia in the 1920s, particularly around the time of the revolution, there were all kinds of experiments going on in how people should live and um, the way society should work. And there was even a, a thing called the New Economic Policy where they tried to liberalise the Soviet economy. But then, as soon as Stalin consolidated his power, um, Russia became less revolutionary and more conservative. So before we get into part two, Lewis, if I... If I talked to you about the Spanish Civil War. What does it mean to you? How have you been exposed to it? My first exposure to the Spanish Civil War was actually in high school. We actually did a whole semester um, studying the Spanish Civil War as part of the lead-up to the Second World War. We were very much taught that the Spanish Civil War was a kind of dress rehearsal for yeah. the Second World War. Looking back on it, now I've read this essay and read some of Orwell's opinions on what the war was, in his opinion, actually about, I can't help but think that I, the version of the war that I was taught was very much the liberal democratic version of what was going on. Because in high school I was taught that the reason the Spanish Republic failed was because the democratic countries were scared of communism and didn't want to help Spain, didn't want to help the democratically elected uh, Republican government of Spain because of Russian, or I should say rather Soviet, influence. Yeah, this is 1936. This is before the Munich Agreement. So the, the Western powers are still, they still haven't really taken this fascist movement as seriously as they need to. They're still spellbound into believing these charismatic dictators' intentions of peace and just protecting our own borders, ignoring the fact that they're experimenting with blitzkrieg and mass bombing on the continent of Spain. Are there any movies that you've seen about the Spanish Civil War that you could recommend to the listeners? Well, when I was at university, I did a couple of years of Spanish. Please don't ask me to speak any Spanish now, though. Vale. See, si. And um, one of the films we watched 
was originally a play. It's called I Carmela, and it's really uh, again. I think it's a film that's made to suit the tastes of modern bourgeois liberal people because rather than coming down strongly on the Republican side, it's a film about ordinary people who are not particularly partisan being, or, or indeed are not partisans, uh, being caught up in the war uh, when all they want to do is just survive. So I, Carmela is quite good. I'd recommend Land and Freedom by Ken Loach. It's a brilliant movie about what we are discussing today in this essay, the, the fight within the left, within the Republicans. It's an excellent movie. And interestingly enough, um, that film, when it came out, was heavily criticised by some of the surviving British communists who'd been in the international brigades because they thought it was too Trotskyist. And <laughs> we'll get on to the idea of what is a Trotskyist in yeah. the second part of the essay. Have you seen Pan's Labyrinth? Yes. That's also a good movie. Set at, It's more set at the time of the Spanish Civil War and its aftermath, as opposed to being about it. Yes, but... it's more about what fascism did mm. to Spain once it was in control. Yeah, it's a, it's a metaphor for what happened as a result of, well, without meaning to give a spoiler. The nationalists win, by the way. The Republicans don't win. Look away now. <laughs> partly because of the infighting within within the popular front. Right, let's jump into to part two of the essay, which opens up by Orwell warning us against communist propaganda in the Spanish Civil War, and how this is relevant in, the G in Great Britain, despite the Communist Party being relatively irrelevant. So here we go again, Orwell and his disdain for any form of propaganda. When you suggested looking at this essay, I thought, well, this is the first essay he wrote about his time in Spain. It'll just be a kind of bare bones rundown of what's going on. But after reading it, I realised this is, as you said, it's just about as important as his whole book, Homage to Catalonia. Not only that, but it really shows us a lot of the concerns that Orwell has throughout his writing career. We see propaganda and the misuse of political language, in this case by the communists against what, who Orwell sees as the true revolutionaries, the, the PUM and other workers' militias. So we, we have propaganda and the misuse of political language. We have his support for left-wing democracy against left-wing totalitarianism. And we also see Orwell's belief in the need for the independence of institutions, like these militias, within a truly democratic society. So how does he describe communist propaganda? What's, what are the main selling points on communist propaganda? And basically, it's terrifying people against the perils of fascism. And he says, fascism is just a kind of meaningless wickedness and aberration, mass sadism, the sort of thing that would happen if you suddenly let loose an asylum full of homicidal maniacs. That's how the communists are selling fascism and it's all part of their propaganda and it's don't question us. If you're not with us, this is what's coming. And what the communists do within their propaganda is ignore the links to capitalism. And Orwell speaks of how workers are suppressed within the propaganda. And he says, meanwhile, 
you have got to get rid of the troublesome person, the worker, who points out that fascism and bourgeois democracy are tweedledum and tweedledee. What he's saying here is that this branch of communism that's taking over the Republicans in the Spanish Civil War isn't all too dissimilar to what they're supposed to be fighting against. Um, have you ever come across a book called Revolutionary Russia 1891 to 1991? No. It's a great book written by a man called Orlando Figus. He is the premier um, expert on the history of the Soviet Union working in Britain today. If you read this book, if you, if you want to understand the history of the Soviet Union in a nutshell, I recommend you read this book because it shows you how what started off as a revolutionary movement, the idea of changing society for the better from the bottom up and putting the workers in charge, putting the peasants in charge, what started off with the best of intentions became much more of a kind of conservative, nationalistic movement uh, under Stalin. So Stalin, by now, has entirely fallen out with Trotsky. Trotsky being the more revolutionary-minded communist. Trotsky who believes that you cannot rest until there has been world revolution. Yeah. Whereas Stalin believes in revolution in one country, essentially, doesn't yeah. he? And the word Trotskyist then, now in the Communist Party and within the Spanish Civil War, is a dirty word. And if you're not with them, you're a Trotskyist. And what do they mean by Trotskyist? Well, according to Orwell, it's generally used to mean a disguised fascist who poses as an ultra-revolutionary in order to split the left-wing forces. Orwell also points out that in communist propaganda, Trotskyist and fascist are more or less used to mean the same thing. A, a Trotskyist is essentially a fascist in disguise, according to Stalinist propaganda. So here in this part of the essay, Orwell is explaining how true revolutionary socialism has been dirtied and the Spanish Civil War is airing this dirty laundry. He gives the example of how Poon, of which, with whom he was fighting, has been disbanded by now and chastised, despite its important early role in the war. And the same has happened to the anarcho-syndicalists, which we mentioned earlier, despite their early efforts in the war. And he predicts that it will soon happen to the left-wing socialists, which it does by the end of the Spanish Civil War, yeah. all as a result of the increasing dominance of the Communist Party within the Republican left. The next part of the essay is summed up neatly by this quote from Orwell himself, where he says, The logical end is a regime in which every opposition party and newspaper is suppressed, and every dissentient of any importance is in jail. Of course, such a regime will be fascism. It will not be the same as the fascism Franco would impose. It will even be better than Franco's fascism, to the extent of being worth fighting for. But it will be fascism, only being separated or operated by communists and those damn liberals. 
it will be called something different. So here he's again reinforcing his view that if we allow the bourgeois liberals and communists to dominate the left in the Spanish Civil War, and I guess in Europe in general, it will just be a disguised form of fascism, which is ultra-capitalist, class-based society. Yes, and I think again we can see here one of Orwell's main concerns, which is anti-totalitarianism, because Orwell, despite being left-wing, is always very keen to show how fascism and communism can really meet up round the back and end up as more or less the same thing. He, he does say that uh, this form of totalitarianism would be worth fighting for. That might be something worth discussing. Mm. Nevertheless, like fascism, this form of totalitarianism will take away personal freedoms, take away the right of the workers to organise themselves separately from the government, and create a society in which everyone is subordinate to the will of the state. What do you think what he means by worth fighting for is those who are fighting under the nationalist course believe wholeheartedly in that form of capitalism, in land-based aristocracy, in the Catholic Church, and in a form of modern feudalism for the peasants. Whereas those fighting for the Republicans are not overtly fighting for those virtues, yet discreetly they are. Hence, it's not worth fighting for for them, whereas for the nationalists, they, they're, they're behind that cause entirely. Yes, I see what you mean, but doesn't he say that the totalitarianism that will come about, the left-wing totalitarianism that would come about, would be worth fighting for compared to the right-wing totalitarianism. As we are to see in 1939, in his view. But shall we just get to the conclusion of part two? He predicts a deadlock in the outcome of the Civil War. Unless the fascist allies, Germany and Italy, make off with the Spanish colonies, mostly in Africa and the Near East, or France gets involved on the side of the Popular Front, he predicts a deadlock. While we now know the fascist allies didn't make off with the Spanish colonies, and France, nor Britain, got involved on the Republican side, and there was deadlock for two more years after this essay, but then the Nationalists finally won, then embarked upon a nearly... 40-year dictatorship under Francisco Franco that only ended in 1975 upon his death. And the uh, repercussions of which, as you mentioned earlier, are felt to this day. Felt to this day. I'll give you an example. So now the Pessoa party is in an alliance with Podemos, they're both left-wing parties, and they decided to close down the Valle de los Caídos, Valley of the Fallen, which is where Franco is buried. And it's a, it's a huge site with one of the world's biggest Christian crosses. And it was built with slave labour. And the bodies of the slave labour who built that place are still buried, unmarked. So for the people on the left, it's always been very distasteful that that place exists. So the left-wing government now decided to close it down and remove Franco's remains. And those on the right 
completely opposed to that because they say it celebrates people that died for a cause and they shouldn't be using politics in such a manner. Where would you sit on something like that? I find it hard to make a judgment because I'm not completely clued up about it. I did hear, doesn't the um, the Valley of the Fallen also include, you, you mentioned the, the enslaved labourers, but wasn't it also considered a monument to the fallen Republican troops as well? I thought it was supposed to uh, represent all of those Spaniards who had fallen in the Civil War. I think in small print it is, but that's not what it represents in reality. And when have you seen it? Have you ever been? I've never been. No. It, it, it's a a near it's near fascist architecture, triumphalist, and yeah, very distasteful. I think really, I, I mean. I'm not Spanish, and I wouldn't want to tell uh, Spanish people what to do with their culture and heritage, but if I was Spanish, I think I would definitely want such triumphalism to be put into the past. And something that actually that reminds me of is the, um, in the last 20 years, the issue of mass graves um, has been a very thorny one in, in Spanish politics. And I remember arguing when I was at university that it's very important that these mass graves are dug up and, yeah. and um, investigated. Uh, but then I remember how some people were arguing at the time it could open old wounds. Yeah. And Again, that argument is split along mm-hmm. on the lines of left and right. I think a few more generations need to pass I personally think there is and perhaps even should be deadlock within this continuous argument about what should be done. And I guess it will just shift depending on who's in government at the time. But you need a few more generations to pass. That while there's people alive whose grandparents were in the Spanish Civil War, it's still going to be too close to the bone. It's dangerous when you see the rise of populism across Europe, across the world even, how issues such as the Spanish Civil War are still used in in discourse and propaganda. I think there's a great danger of romanticising the situation as well, yeah. because I think even if... On both you, sides. Yes, yeah. well, I think there is a danger of romanticising the Spanish Civil War on both sides, because you might think that it would be a great thing to go and fight for democracy... Uh, against uh, military insurrection but when you read Orwell's essay you really get a sense of how messy the whole thing was and you could be in a republican area you could think you were fighting for democracy but then you know next week an NKVD officer could come knocking on your door and take you away for being a Trotskyist when you don't even know what that meant. Well Orwell says in this essay Does the Republican government seriously intend to win? It certainly does not intend to lose. On the other hand, an outright victory with Franco in flight and the Germans and Italians driven into the sea would raise difficult problems, some of them too obvious to need mentioning. Those obvious problems being Stalinist communist influence within Spain and how that would affect the the future of the country. This is also, reading this essay has also made me think about how a lot of the cultural artefacts we have of the Spanish Civil War are kind of romanticised and very communist-inflected 
artifacts. Um, when I was growing up, my parents were really into folk music, and there's a lot of British folk songs about the Spanish Civil War. And they are, now that I read this, they are very much from the mainline communist perspective. There, there's no, there's a lot of mentioning... Which controlled the narrative yes, of the Spanish Civil War. There's a lot of mentioning of the international brigades. You don't hear about the poom in those songs. You don't hear about the the, orc, the work of the orcas organising, the workers organising themselves. Yeah, um, the, those poor seals for the nationalists had a tough time. <laughs> Free willy, I say. So he concludes the essay by saying that the truth about what's happening on the Poplar Front has been distorted in the British press. He means the left-wing British press and dominated by the Communist Party, hinting that this is because the public and institutions are sleepwalking with regards to the realities of ideologies on the continent. And he's referring to both. He's referring to the realities of the Communist Party and what its intentions are on the continent. And he's also here giving a veiled criticism of how we were sleepwalking with regards to fascism. And his final sentence, he says, and thus we are one step nearer to the Great War against fascism, in inverted commas, which will allow fascism, the British variety, to be slipped over our necks during the first week. What do you think he meant by that? So what he's saying is he, he can see in Spain how the infighting on the left and the influence of the Communist Party is just allowing fascism to creep over the Iberian Peninsula. And I think that's what he's saying is going to happen in Britain. And by fascism, he really means totalitarianism. Totalitarianism. I think they're quite synonymous for Orwell at this time. I think communist totalitarianism and fascist totalitarianism are essentially the same thing for Orwell, aren't they? Yeah. So that's the essay. We strongly recommend you to read this. Or if you haven't got the time, watch Land and Freedom. Or if you've got a lot of time, read Homage to Catalonia. It's a brilliant book. So, Lewis, off the bat, what do you take from this essay? What's a theme that you think is worth us having a chat about? The theme that I think is worth us talking about is Orwell's stance against totalitarianism and the way he equates fascist and communist totalitarianism. Again, that idea that we mentioned earlier about the two ideologies meeting round the back. Yeah. Um, I'm also rather intrigued by his stance when it comes to liberal democracy. He, he, war he goes to Barcelona a communist and he comes back a steadfast democratic socialist, which he remained for the rest of his life. Yes, interestingly, um, Orwell says in his letters that, and in this essay as well that he joined the PUM almost by mistake because he had actually gone to join the international brigades. Yeah. So... This was really a formative experience for Orwell when he finally realised that Soviet communism was not, as he saw it, representing the best interests of the working classes. Yes. Simon, is Orwell's belief in the idea of revolution overly idealistic? I'm thinking about how he's anti-communist, anti-totalitarianism, but I find it hard to see how 
various revolutions can avoid ending in totalitarianism. Because as we've seen in many countries, France, Russia, a revolution takes place. There's a period of freedom in various sectors of society, but then there's always a reaction against that freedom, which is ultimately caused by the revolution. Do you think Orwell's belief that revolution can be something that brings about true democracy is just too idealistic? I believe so. But from Orwell's perspective, he just doesn't think it's been done right yet. Let's, let's refer to the Trotskyist global revolution, which has to be pushed through to, to its end zone. So when he's in Barcelona, for the first time in his life, he feels classless. And that's as a result of the revolution that had happened. And the workers, as he says, are in the saddle. He loves what's happened there in the society, how uh, aristocratic Italian volunteer is breaking bread with him on an equal footing. So he's seeing that and what the potential of revolution is. What are your opinions on the matter? Well, as I've said before, I find it hard to put my faith in revolution. Uh, I really rather identify more with the uh, kind of gradualist liberal Democrats that um, Orwell rather despises and thinks are partly on the way to fascism. Okay, so the, the concepts of liberté, fraternité, égalité that are awash throughout European society now would have come about had it not been for revolution? I don't think people need to take up arms, is what I'm saying. How about guillotines? I don't think people need to take up arms or take off heads. Can you think of any examples of a velvet revolution? Well, we had democratic velvet revolutions in the late 80s, early 90s. Or post-English Civil War, with William the Orange well, coming yes, the, to power. Well, the, yes, the so-called Glorious Revolution, yeah. although one might argue that was simply uh, more of a, a religious settlement yeah. than anything. What do you think of this idea of democracy in this essay? Can we reconcile Orwell's support for democracy with his belief that capitalist, as he calls it, bourgeois, liberal democracy is only a few steps away from fascism. Yeah, because the bourgeois liberal democracy is the status quo. It's maintaining a class-based society in which those at the bottom serve the needs of those at the top. It's, it's a form of modern feudalism. So his idea of democracy and socialist democracy isn't class-based. It's universal human rights spread equally. And he doesn't see that in the, in the left of the Republican Party in the Spanish Civil War. He doesn't like how at this time the truth is being hidden within the British press, mostly to distract from the fascist narrative. It's, we must defeat fascism. But he feels that narrative is disguising the truth about what needs to also be discussed. Can you think of any contemporary examples of that? Well, thinking about what's going on in the world right now um, with the coronavirus, in Britain, for example, 
We have had a Conservative government for more than a decade now. Uh, they, they had a Liberal coalition at the beginning, a kind of two-headed Barnum and Bailey type creature. Yeah, the, the head of the Liberal Democrat side of the coalition who now works for Facebook. Is that right? Yeah. I'm not surprised. There you go. Probably doesn't have many friends, I imagine. <laughs> but, like I say, we've had 10 years of Conservative government. For a long period, that co Conservative government was concerned with, as they would put it, balancing the books, and as other people might put it, uh, cutting public services and cutting the amount of money spent on Extreme public austerity. Services. Now, because of the coronavirus, we are in a bizarre position in Britain where the right-wing party is spending millions and millions of pounds propping up private industries and propping up people's wages so that there's not a disaster. And I get the feeling that the right-wing media is ignoring this, this massive amount of state aid, this, in a way, repudiation of the importance of the state in supporting people, so that when the pandemic eventually ends, things can just go back to business as usual. I also feel that in these days of trying to contain the virus, uh, we're also being told to ignore the things that exacerbated uh, the virus, the unrestricted travel, the unwillingness to close borders early because of the effect it would have had on the economy. Um, the unwillingness to stop us from congregating in social spaces in which we would spend money. Yes, exactly. I.e. pubs. Mm. And when the situation gets very bad, the media distracts us with something like uh, Prince Harry's personal life. Yeah. Yeah. That's an example. A good example. I, I, I couldn't give two hoots about this recent interview that Prince Harry and Meghan Markle gave with Oprah Winfrey. Yet it's dominating the papers whilst in the background there's this great economic struggle going on as, as a result of the global pandemic. And people are turning a blind eye to what it actually means, how state services are being slowly dismantled under the disguise of relief fund. And this is going to affect us in the future when the economy starts to slowly recover. And also, did you notice that recently when the nurses' pay rise came into the news? Uh, people who don't live in, listeners who don't live in Britain might not know about this, but nurses and other NHS health service workers were given a tiny 1% pay rise. This is after a year of them working on the front line suffering a great deal physically and mentally uh, and they were given a tiny tiny pay rise this was in the media for a day and then very conveniently the prince harry uh, and Meghan story came along and that's been all that the right wing papers have had on their front pages for about a week and only the left wing papers are still carrying the uh, shameful nurses' pay rise situation. So I think that's a classic example of 
media uh, distortion or diversion. As a, as a concluding remark, let's talk about how these divisions within the left still exist to this day. So going back to this essay, when he wrote it, he initially intended it for it to be published in The New Statesman, whose editor, Kingsley Martin, turned it down. Now, Orwell had a good relationship with The New Statesman, so as a bit of a softener, they offered him the chance to review a book about the Spanish Civil War called The Spanish Cockpit by Franz Borkenau. And in his review of this book, he continues his narrative of criticising the Communist Party, and that was also rejected. And later on, the most influential left-leaning publisher, Victor Golanch, rejected homage to Catalonia because of the anti-communist stance within his narrative of the left within the war. And at the time, Orwell was derided by the left, hence the lack of publicity for homage to Catalonia when it was published and a lack of sales. And he's still derided to this day and rejected by many on the left for his views on the realities of communism, the Communist Party and the Spanish Civil War. Can I tell you a story, Simon? Oh, it's not that one, is it? No, it's not that. You've okay. heard that one many okay. times, haven't you? The other one. Mm. You I can tell the other yeah. one. I can't tell the first one for legal reasons, yeah. but when I was at school, I was in uh, my modern studies class. Modern studies is basically the politics and sociology class. You must have hated that. Modern studies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> If, if it didn't involve periwigs, I wasn't interested. <laughs> so I was in modern studies and I was talking with my teacher, who was uh, an interesting guy, typical Scottish middle-aged school teacher. I was talking to him about my interest in Orwell. I was about 15. I've been into Orwell for quite a long time. And when I mentioned how much I liked Orwell, he said, yes, he was a good writer, but a bit of an old fascist. And at the time, I just let it go. I was 15. I didn't know how to respond to this. Later on, I thought it might have been something to do with the fact that he famously wrote a blacklist of communists and potential communists for MI5 when he was dying. Um, we'll probably get onto that in another podcast. Yeah. But now that I've read the essay, I realise that perhaps my teacher, and it wouldn't be unusual amongst Scottish comprehensive school teachers, my teacher might have been an old communist and might have thought of uh, George Orwell as, in the immortal words of Monty Python, a bit of a splitter. Yeah, exactly. You can see it in the British Labour Party now, can't you? You've got Keir Starmer, who's now the leader of the Labour Party, and maybe we could call him the Orwellian type, and he's trying to bring across a bit more social democratism into the party and make them a bit more popular in the polls. And then you've got the Corbynists on the other side who just won't let it go. And they'd rather cause division than Labour winning an election. Rather win an argument than an election. Which has always been my problem with those on the left. But don't you think another problem, and it's really typified by Orwell's stance, is that even someone like Orwell, by criticising the bloc, the communist bloc, he himself is causing a split. He is. He is, but he feels he's doing it constructively. 
he feels he's exposing a, necess a, nece a necessity in that he's exposing an evil within the left. Whereas Corbynists, we'll say, for example, or the Communist Party at this time, believed that their way was the only way and any divisions were because people weren't adhering to their opinions. Well, that was Spilling the Spanish Beans. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. Next week, we will be discussing my choice of essay, some thoughts on the common toad. Join us next time. And so it's thank you from me. Gracias from me. You're well, impressed. Yes. I've been practicing for a week. <laughs> <laughs> Good pronunciation. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. See you later. Or well, that ends well. Oh, God. Never gets better. <laughs>